Agile started off as a discussion on how to improve product development. That was in 2000. 20 years on, is the context in which it was conceived still relevant? Joining us today on Podchats for Future CIO are Cliff Berg, founder of Agile 2 and consultant and founder of Agile Griffin, and Lisa Cooney, principal Agile coach at Axios. They are two of the seven co-authors of Agile 2, The Next Iteration of Agile, available on Amazon on paperback and Kindle format. Cliff, Lisa, thank you for joining us on Podchats for Future CIO. Thank you. You're welcome. What do you mean by Agile? Cliff, why don't we start with you? Okay. Well, Agile is one of those things where if you ask different people in the Agile community, you'll probably get different answers. We had to, in coming up with Agile 2, you know, it took more than half a year for us to synthesize the ideas of Agile 2 among 15 people around the world before we wrote the book. And one of the first things we had to do was kind of agree, well, what is Agile? And as Lisa mentioned, the Agile Manifesto is clearly a cornerstone of what Agile is. Uh, it's, it's kind of a defining thing, but it, it did not begin the Agile movement. The Agile movement, before it was called the Agile movement, really began. You know, Alan, you have some gray hair like I do. You probably remember before the Agile Manifesto, there was efforts to define lightweight methodologies and so on. And stream programming really kind of was the first to get a lot of traction or at least a lot of attention, I should say, when the book about that came out in 1999. And then the Agile Manifesto in 2001 kind of took the baton from that and put a name on the movement. So Agile Manifesto clearly is part of it. But... There's also the movement and there's the community of people who generally advocate for Agile or believe in Agile or practice it in some way or talk about it, write about it, use it. And then there is the range of activities or practices or techniques that people use that are usually associated with Agile, like the Agile team room, for example, is part of Agile because that's something people often do when they do Agile. They have an Agile team room. And so it's all all of those things also are the frameworks, Scrum and Kanban and feature-driven development, if you go back far enough. You know, so those frameworks and including the scaling frameworks that have come out later, they're part of the Agile ecosystem. So all of that is Agile. That's how I tend to think of it. Now, now Lisa, in the context of present-day business operations, and we're in, into, deep into COVID-19 these days, is Agile still relevant? I think, yes, I think it is. You know, I would add to Cliff's definition of Agile, my personal attraction to it. You know, I was a philosophy major in college and I I wrote uh, my honors thesis on moral philosophy. And one of the things that I loved about Agile was the clear statement of values and principles. And I love that because people can find lots of different ways of adhering to them. It's not necessarily about any one particular practice or technique or framework or approach. They sort of form the fundamental structure or scaffolding on which everything else resides. And so when we were talking about, you know, what is Agile and how can we be relevant, bring ideas that are helpful to the Agile space, we started realizing that we needed to use those same words, values and principles to describe our work. We even uh, got asked in one of the webinars, you know, why would you use that phrase? You know, you could have called it something else. And it's like, yeah, we could have, but people have been using 
using those words for moral concepts for thousands of years, and they work. And I think why it's relevant now as much as ever is because when you start talking about things like values and principles, you're really getting to the fundamentals of what it means to be human and what it means to have interactions with other people, how you want to be together, how you want to work together, what decisions you want to make about what are your goals and how are you going to achieve your goals. And I believe that Agile and the values and principles we describe in Agile too really allow you to do that without being too prescriptive and without giving people a cookie cutter answer. And if anything, you know, during this pandemic, we've all learned that we have to make it up as we go along. We have to make new rules when the old rules no longer serve us. How is Agile 2 different from the original Agile Manifesto? Cliff, let's start off with you. We started conducting a retrospective in the spirit of Agile. We assembled a team. Actually, uh, Lisa was worked with me to define how we would do this because it was during a pandemic and we put together a global team. We had people in Vietnam, Australia, India, parts of the U.S. It was quite challenging. And, you know, so given the time zones, it wasn't even possible to bring everybody together for a meeting. And so we had to figure out how to to do a lot of this asynchronously or by one-on-one -on -one Zoom calls in which we took a lot of notes and shared that and then chatted about that. And so we did a retrospective process in which we discussed with everybody, what do you think is working and what's not working today? And we ended up with a long list. And if an item came up two or more times, we considered it to be a key idea. And those key ideas, we then separated them into what we decided were problems or insights sites. Those became kind of the meat of our discussions. We grouped them into categories and we created a table of who wanted to participate in the debates about the issues in each category. So that retrospective process was really how we started this and it really drove everything. We wanted to basically make Agile work better. So that's really how it's different. We, by identifying all the things that aren't working well, we then came up with ideas and eventually principles for how it could work better. And as you can imagine, the scope of those issues or principles extends way beyond the scope of what the original Agile Manifesto outlines, because we were asking the general question of how can you make this work better? So we ended up touching on issues related to leadership and data, as Lisa mentioned, because that got left out. Product design got left out from Agile in a huge way. People are trying to bring it back, but it really kind of got disconnected. Product design was fairly mature, but not very agile by the 90s. A lot of things were not integrated into agile. You know, DevOps became its own movement, bizarrely. So why is that? Now, DevOps is really a perspective that enables you to do risk management in real time. That's really fundamentally what it is. Uh, through the feedback loops and so on and, and thorough testing, you're doing risk management in real time. We wanted to kind of address all those things because those are the things you need to achieve agility. And that's how it's different. It's a bigger picture and it's 
much more nuanced. Instead of a set of maxims that you have to kind of guess about, you know, we have principles that we came up with. Each principle is supported by all of our thought process that led to it. We didn't just pick these principles out of the air. We debated and debated and distilled our problems and insights into a set of principles. So those are the distillation of our thinking. Uh, that's how it's different. It's much more thoughtful. You know, the original Agile Manifesto, 17 guys came up with the four values in a weekend ski trip. We spent more than six months thoroughly discussing these issues in depth. And also the team we put together was people with diverse background by intention. We have product design experts, human resources, you know, system engineering, DevOps and Agile, data science, oh, and leadership, of course, and business. We wanted to address the real problem. We wanted to address how do you achieve business agility, really? That's how it's different. We took on a bigger problem and we think we have a more nuanced uh, answer. Was there any group that you unintentionally left out? What we were starting with was the pain points. Experienced agilists know that there's challenges and, you know, a sort of simplistic approach is, well, if agile isn't working for you well, then you're not doing it right. Experienced agilists know that that's actually not the case, that there could be all kinds of other things going on that need to be attended to in order for agile to be successful. You know, we were concerned that agile was sort of getting a bad rap, right? It, it just was getting a bad reputation. As, as being something that doesn't work. And experienced folks know that it does work and it can work really, really well. And it can be transformational and make an incredible difference. And so we were trying to articulate, you know, what are these problems that we see? Not software problems, not general problems in business, but problems in the way that Agile can be either misapplied, misinterpreted, misunderstood, and therefore not be as successful. We think it has incredible incredible potential to be successful. So we weren't trying to boil the ocean. So we weren't trying to say, here's how to do Agile if you run a school, and here's how to do Agile if you run a law firm. We did come back to some really core values. What I really like about our value statements is that we use the word and instead of or, and that was an intentional choice due to the original construct of the Agile Manifesto's value statements is we value these things over these things things. And there is the caveat, of course, that says that is while we value the items on the right, we value the items on the left more. However, that caveat often gets dropped and ignored. And people think of it as these things are good and these things are bad, like it's one or the other. And what we were trying to get at is that you need both. And it's a matter of degree and balance, depending on the circumstances that you're in. And so some of the things that we paired together may not seem like like they would be natural pairs, but we feel like it's all a matter of degree. And as long as you're thinking about what's most important in your context for your unique environment and circumstances, the important thing is to apply the values in a way that makes sense for your situation. And I think that's an important distinction to make because our values invite people to really think about how can I value all of these things? Well, for Agile to work, what needs to happen from several perspectives, from the perspective of leadership, culture, approach to technology, and approach to businesses? 
you saw a separation of business and technology where, you know, which was a change, you know, like Henry Ford knew how his cars worked and he knew how they were made. But then when management became like a profession, you saw this kind of split, this uh, compartmentalization and CEOs became more like financial portfolio managers, you know, where they have these different things going on and they, they just look at the numbers. And that kind of was the dominant theme in the second half half of the 20th century, but that doesn't work that well anymore for a lot, if not most companies today or most organizations, because things have shifted so that now most business happens in a technology platform. And so you can no longer separate like what the product is from how the product is made. Amazon is the poster child for that. The fact that their delivery happens in one day, assuming it's within the same country, that can only happen because of the way they do it. The fact that they can deploy updates to their business platform a thousand times a day and be sure it works and measure the response of their customers and pivot based on that response, that makes their platform really powerful for them. And so they can do that because of the way they build and maintain their platform. So the way that you maintain the systems that build your product or your service is now just as important as what the actual product is. And so if you're in a leadership role, a strategic leadership role in an organization, you can no longer say, I don't need to know that. That's about my CTO knows that. I don't need to know that. That does not work anymore. If you look at the companies that are really leading today, Tesla and Amazon and media companies like Netflix that took over and they're in those positions because their leadership doesn't separate what the product is from how the product is delivered. They see it as a whole range of things that all work together and they take on the whole problem. They want to solve the whole problem, not just one slice of it. So leadership today needs to understand the product and the market and their customer like they always have had to, but they also today have to understand the delivery, how it's made, how you keep it up to date, how you improve it, how you get it to the customer. That's all one flow today and you cannot separate them anymore. Lisa, culture and business. One of the things I think uh, many of us have observed is the installation of an agile transformation by uh, somebody coming in with a series of processes and techniques and approaches that are, I don't know, I guess the word might be installed in a particular division of an organization. And without thinking first about the culture that is in that organization and how people interact with each other, what their values are, how they tend to relate to one another, and so those so-called installations of Agile don't necessarily work because people are unable to, like in different parts, like say the leadership who's not really focused that much on the Agile transformation and thinks of it something that's something gonna, that's going to be done to or by or with those other people, they're still maintaining their same cultural expectations and their values about how everybody works. And Agile really shifts the way people think in a very deep way and almost gets to really 
really who you are as a human. And so you're going to shift your culture a little bit. And so then we see these culture clashes where organizations struggle to implement Agile and leader gets frustrated because they feel like, well, we paid all these expensive consultants and we want to change things, but it's not really working. And the people who are trying to work with the, the new Agile processes and mindsets get frustrated because they tell themselves the leaders just don't get it or whatever group of people it is that they're interacting with in the organization. And culture is the common denominator and you can't fix or change culture with a process. It's much deeper than that. Culture is values and how people interact with each other and many other things. And I personally believe that this is all related to business because at the end of the day, businesses that get these balances right tend to have more success because people who are really inspired by their workplace and feel connected to the goals and mission of their company. And they feel like they have some level of autonomy with actually the nitty gritty details of how they do their work. And they feel like they understand how they fit in and that the expectations are realistic and communications are clear and things are visible and all that kind of thing that goes to helping people feel empowered, feel inspired and get up every day wanting to give their full energy and their best selves to help their organization and they feel proud of their work and all of those things. And it leads to the business able to be more successful, not by itself, right? Because obviously the business leaders need to have a good strategy and the product leaders need to do a good job with product decisions and design. So it's not the only thing, but it's a lot of it is having people feel really connected to the business. And so, you know, some of the things that I work with with my engineers is it's not just about building this thing the perfect way. You need to understand how the thing that you're building fits in and then drives revenue for the company so that we all can still have jobs, right? So it's a system, as Cliff was saying, right? And it's all interrelated. And so being able to have that systems thinking approach to the organization, personally, I believe is not just important for leaders. I think it's important for everyone to some extent to understand understand the system that they're in and how they can themselves be the most successful and help their organizations to be successful. What must Agile practitioners leave behind to shift to Agile too? I would encourage them to let go of the shackles of frameworks. You know, frameworks are very useful because they're a great source of ideas. But if you treat a framework, you know, and I'm referring to any kind of framework, an agile framework or a business framework or something, it's if you treat it as a template where you try to copy that into your organization, then it doesn't work well generally because in order for a framework to work, people have to exercise judgment to execute the different steps or whatever in the framework. But if you just say do those steps, they don't have the judgment because they didn't create the framework. So they won't execute it well for many years. And during that intervening time, they'll actually create quite a mess. You'll you'll have a very deep satur change curve or change curve because things won't work well at all. You'll have gone from a 
system that that works okay but is not very agile to a system that's really struggling and where there's a lot of conflict and and finger pointing and and people saying agile's the fault you know this doesn't work and so on a framework can create a lot of chaos in an organization if you just install a framework so you know it doesn't always create chaos but it can also create just poor performance for some time it's much better i think if you view a framework as a set of ideas but then gradually institute your own methods drawing from the framework for ideas but piece by piece adding your own methods because then you know why you're doing it you learn why you're doing it and so you understand the rationale for each practice i would encourage them to let go of frameworks from the point of view of thinking you have to do things according to a certain framework one of the things that I learned through this whole many month period of investigation of Agile is the realization of how many things that we think are core Agile ideas that are really concepts that evolved in the community long after the Agile Manifesto was written and that became accepted as somehow always being true. And I'll give a simple example, which is this idea that the best form of communication is face-to-face. And so therefore, you know, in this era of the pandemic, you should be on Zoom with your video on because that's like the best form of communication because that's the face-to-face, right? But if you think about it, we're in a very different scenario now. And being on Zoom is a lot different than being face-to-face. And there are times when it's actually not the best form of communication. So for example, I created this uh, little retro process that I used at Axios that we adapted early on when Cliff was figuring out how we're going to communicate, where it was asynchronous written communication that was partially anonymous, not completely, but we allowed space for people to send each other emails, to send each other Slack messages, to communicate asynchronously in ways that they wanted to, and then to come together as a group. And we also intentionally spread this out over time. Because when you bring people together in a room all at once to brainstorm, for example, they may not come up with their best ideas. But if you give people time over a week or two, and you have a series of written prompts, potentially with some one-on-one meetings and or some group meetings also, you can sort of tap all the different ways that people communicate with each other and all the different ways that our brains come up with really great ideas to be able to actually accomplish something that is deeper and richer than what might have been possible if you were all in the same room, even without COVID, right? Even all in the same room, sitting around a table, that's not necessarily going to be the best way to make decisions. And frankly, I don't think that when the original folks wrote the Agile Manifesto and they said that about face-to-face communication, Cliff said, correct me if I quote it wrong, but I think they said the best form of communication between business people and developers, right? Something like that? It, it was written in a general way, but I, I do think there, I have a very strong hunch that there was one individual who shoehorned that particular principle into the Agile Manifesto. Because, uh, you know, Alistair Coburn is a guy with great ideas, um, but he's clearly an extrovert and very much so. I mean, he's very involved with community initiatives and so on. He talks all over the place. You look at his picture and his hair standing up. He's out there. He had been blogging about 
face-to-face communication for the entire year, right leading up to the Agile meeting at Snowbird. So it clearly came from him. Now, did the others say, yeah, that's a great idea? Or did they say, okay, Alistair, we'll put it in? I don't know. Um, I know it got put in through email after the meeting. Um, how much consensus they actually had around it, I don't know. Unfortunately, it is written in a general way, and because it's written as an absolute, it's the only principle that I actually think is wrong because it's it's written as an absolute rather than as like most of the time. Or is there a place for low code, no code, IPaaS in Agile too? You know, actually going way back. I mean, I, I've been involved with the you know design automation community since the 80s, you know, and even recently with, you know, model-based development and so on. And, you know, the, from the engineering side, you know, original case tools, I was, you know, very into those for a while. And then when it kind of got derailed by trying to use UML as a design language, you know, it doesn't work because it was intended to be used for that. But anyway, today's tools are a little different. They tend to work a lot better. You know, low code has its place today. I always like to, you know, to remind people that it's not for everything, I always say, can you build a low code tool using a low code tool? And of course, no, you can't. <laughs> it wouldn't work very well if you did. So it's not for everything. You know, you wouldn't build an, you wouldn't write an operating system using a low code tool. Uh, you wouldn't write an aircraft flight control system using a low code tool. You wouldn't write a uh, self-driving automobile system using low code. But it has its place. With using low code tools, you can very rapidly assemble business applications. Um, and you know, part of the value is that there's an inherent architecture. Today, applications are highly distributed. And if you are designing a digital product that's going to operate in the cloud, say, you know, which we have to remind ourselves is only a segment of the industry. A lot of products have are hard, real products that you can hold and they, they might run embedded software. Not everything runs in the cloud. <laughs> In fact, there are probably more products that don't run in the cloud than run in the cloud. But, you know, low code, that's for cloud stuff for the most part. And, you know, so for those kinds of products, if you design a cloud-based software system without low code, you have to address what today people call the outer architecture, which is how all the different services interact with each other. And unfortunately, there's no design language for that. It's not even written down. That outer architecture exists in the heads of the programmers, which is a real problem. It means that it's tribal knowledge, basically, you know, which messages are received by which services and, and which services call which other services. It's not written down. It's not designed anywhere. It's kind of implicit in how everything is deployed, but you have to actually look at the code to kind of reverse engineer and figure it out. And then the way you de deploy all that, the way you compose it in terms of networks and services and everything, you have to come up with all that using cl cloud tools, but if you use a low-code platform, they give you an architecture and you just use that. You do it their way. They already have decided for you how to architect it, so you don't have to figure that out. And they're operating it in their cloud, assuming you're, you're using it as a service you know, not on premises. By making decisions for you, they've made the challenge easier and it just then becomes a kind of simpler problem to create applications. You know, a lot of people focus in on the design language, which tends 
supposed to be a graphical language. That's actually the easy part. To a programmer, you know, low-code programmers are still programmers, but they're moving pictures around. But it takes a programmer just as much time to move a picture around as it does to write, if this, then do that. That doesn't save you. Moving the pictures around doesn't save you on the time. And, you know, and I used to be a big advocate for graphical programming languages. I actually built one years ago. I'm telling you as someone who was a believer in that. So it's good. But you do get a picture, which is very good for sharing with other people about what the business logic is for this thing, which solves a problem. So to get to your question, which is what is the place for low code in terms of agility, there is a strong value proposition from an agile perspective. And it's that because they solve a lot of the architecture problem for you, it shortens that development time. And it shortens it so much, you can move that development time much closer to the product design step. Because you want you want rapid iteration or frequent interchange between people who are conceptualizing the product. What should this product do? What problem are we solving for people? And how would that work? Can we actually build that? Can we build a quick version of that to actually see that work? So today, you know, without low code, you have to use patterns like dual track design or something where you, you have a product design team and then you have, they feed things to a development, some development teams, and then they, they iterate something and you're talking weeks in terms of the feedback loop. With low code, you could potentially have a feedback loop of days instead of weeks. So it really increase your, your agility because of the compressed development time. What is your advice to the CIOs to make Agile too relevant to the organizations that they support? Lisa, let's start off with you. I would say to encourage them to think of Agile as something that they need to learn about themselves. And one of the ideas that comes to mind is that we have in Agile too, is the idea of how business people need to really understand the tech. Now, what do we mean by that? We don't mean they have to become engineers because that's not going to happen. They don't have to learn DevOps really, or how to do things themselves, but they need to learn enough about what what the tech platforms are and what all the development teams are doing, that they can understand it enough to really work well collaboratively with them and be able to communicate that and explain that to other people in the organization, possibly their peers, possibly higher level people, to encourage them to really understand what all these teams are doing. I mean, it just never ceases to amaze me. Uh, tech people are expensive. Having these teams with all these different skill sets are very expensive. I feel like a business owner, a business leader, a CIO especially really needs to understand, well, what are they doing exactly? And how are they doing it? Not in terms of being able to learn enough to do it themselves, as I said, but enough to have a deep respect and appreciation for what they're focused on and the problems that they face. And also for trust to emerge and develop so that there's trust in both directions, so that when the CIO needs to go to the teams and say, look, here's some constraint. We just have to work within this constraint. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, the teams are trusting and understanding and try to work within that. And then when the teams come and say, hey, we've hit this problem, we can't do something, that there's some level of respect and awareness back and forth about how hard it is to do these things that we're asking folks to do and to honor and respect their intelligence as the people doing the work and their 
their ability to be able to speak clearly about what it is that they need or how long it's going to take or what, you know, and to have that conversation, to have it be a conversation, not a one-way street. So I would say my advice to them, well, of course, you know, I have to say this is, is read our book. As Cliff said, you know, it's a nice read. It's written in a way that's engaging and informative. And there's some material out online as well to find out about the values and principles. And, you know, you hear this from people, my, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes in social settings and other settings where people will come to me and say, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm an agile coach. And they're like, oh, and I see this look on their face and they're, and they're like, I don't like agile. Those agile people came to our company and my company, sometimes I'm talking to the owner or the executive of the company and they kind of mess things up. And I like to be able to say, essentially, I feel your pain. I understand what you're talking about. I'm not an apologist. I'm not going to debate with you or tell you, well, you must have done agile wrong. Instead, what I'm going to say is, yeah, these things are hard. And we wrote a book about how to tackle some of these pain points and some of these challenges that emerge when you try to undertake a change at this scale. Change at that scale. Cliff, what about your, your end? You know, what Lisa mentioned about a conversation, I think, is really key. You know, what you don't want to do is kind of shield yourself, you know, by staying in your office and just talking to your direct reports. You know, you need to practice, you know, Gemba, you know, lean Gemba. You need to actually go out and talk to, to people who are doing stuff, you know, not trust reports because you need to know how the sausage is made. And most CIOs know how the sausage is made generally, uh, although a lot of their experience might come from before things change. But you need to talk to people, not just to learn how the sausage is made, but what their ideas for how it could be made better. That's what you often don't get from your, your direct reports. It doesn't reach you. You need to get a range of thoughts and ideas that you can only get by going out and talking to various staff level, you know, individual contributor thought leaders throughout their organization, people in, in, you know, different roles who really know their stuff and have ideas and they wish someone would ask them. They just wish someone would talk to them. And, you know, I would say, get out of your office, you know, go talk to jump, skip levels. The managers below you won't like it, but skip levels, go talk to people. I worked for a CIO years ago who used to do that. Um, he, he had a, his finger on what was really going on in his organization. Um, Lisa actually knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> so that's what I would say, because that's that's how you'll get real conversations going. And the other thing, you know, that Lisa mentioned about, uh, you know, when she talks to people and mentions Agile and then they frown, well, that's something we hit square on in our book, in our material, because we tackle what isn't working about Agile. And what I would say to CIOs, besides read the book, I would say, realize that the Agile community, that there's a range of opinions in the Agile community. You know, you can't go to like McKinsey and find out the real Agile. You'll get something different than if you go to uh, Deloitte or someone, depending on who ends up being the lead consultant for whatever they do for you. And a lot of what consulting companies will give you will be kind of the standard Agile, which we feel isn't quite right. I mean, that's why we undertook Agile too. There's a lot in the standard Agile narrative that isn't quite right. Like self-organizing teams is a very complex issue. You can't just create 50 teams or 500 teams. I've worked for, a, it's a work for a bank that has 500 teams. You can't just 
create all those teams and then expect them to self-organize, it won't happen. It'll, you'll have chaos. What happens is leaders will emerge or the scrum masters will end up leading teams or the product owners will end up leading. You'll end up with leaders, whether you like it or not. And so you really need to tackle the leadership problem head on and try to figure out what kinds of leadership do we need and how do we make that happen? And you know, how do we be ready to pivot if it's not working well? So it's complicated. You know, a lot of the standard agile narrative is too simple. It, it's like bumper sticker uh, logic, you know, do this, do that. Life's not that simple. So I would say, realize that this stuff is not simple. You cannot adopt agile by just following some simple ideas. It, it's not simple. Lisa Cliff, thank you for joining me on Podchats for Future CIO. Our pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Once again, that was Cliff Berg, founder of Agile2 and consultant and founder of Agile Griffin, and Lisa Cooney, principal Agile coach at Axios, two of the seven co-authors of Agile2, the next iteration of Agile, available on Amazon, on paperback and Kindle format. You are listening into Podchats for Future CIO. As always, if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on this channel, simply email us at editors at society.com. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for our free weekly newsletter so you won't miss an episode of Podchats for Future CIO. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great day, and see you on the next episode of Podchats for Future CIO. Bye for now.